The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. The global right and far right increasingly view Israel as a model. A settler community making demands, punishing people who stand in the way of its settlement plans. A nation to mimic and copy and get inspiration from, and weapons are simply part of that, but also an inspiration a building if they want to create a Hindu fundamentalist state or a Christian fundamentalist state or a Muslim fundamentalist state, whatever it may be. Israel is the model. Hi, welcome. This is the Verso podcast. My name is Eleanor Penny. This week we were supposed to be bringing you an episode on Silicon Valley and money in the digital age. But as you might have noticed, world historical events are currently unfolding in occupied Palestine. So, change of plan. On Friday the 6th of October, I sat down to talk to Anthony Lowenstein and Garda Kami about international arms dealing, the political economy of the occupation and the one-state solution. The next day, on the morning of Saturday the 7th of October, part of the fence surrounding the Gaza Strip was bulldozed down by Palestinians. Fighting broke out between Hamas and the Israeli Defence Forces after the former attacked a music festival near the Gazan border. Many civilians and military personnel were killed. Hamas took a reported 200 hostages and fired rockets into Israeli territory. Israel then unleashed a full-scale siege an aerial bombardment that has targeted refugee routes, housing blocks and hospitals, combined with shutting off water, fuel, electricity and food to all 2.2 million people in Gaza. Half of these people are children, and all of them have been illegally imprisoned for years by a settler colonial state. Israel's Defence Minister Yoav Gallant stated, We fight human animals and act accordingly. This strategy of collective punishment is being supported by many allied governments, including the US and the UK. Israeli troops are poised for a ground invasion of Gaza as Palestinian civilians have been told to flee, a choice between statelessness and death. Make no mistake, this is ethnic cleansing and genocide in action. Since this conversation was recorded beforehand, some of the language might not be reflective of the detail of the situation in the last two weeks. And of course, while this is always an extremely sensitive topic, those sensitivities have understandably been turbocharged. Many families across Israel and Palestine are mourning loved ones right now, and many Palestinians are fleeing for their lives. So please listen with that in mind. With that said, let's turn to two of the foremost scholars of Israel-Palestine to shed some light on the history of the occupation that led us to this appalling episode. Gada Kami is an academic, a physician and an author. Her books include In Search of Fatima, A Palestinian Story, Return, A Palestinian Memoir and One State, The Only Democratic Future for Palestine-Israel. Anthony Lowenstein is an author and journalist. His books include Pills, Powder and Smoke, Disaster Capitalism, My Israel Question, and his latest, The Palestine Laboratory, published this year by Verso Books. We talked about surveillance technology, global fascism, and the relationship between the United States and the Knesset.
Hello, Anthony. Hi, Garda. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I'm so pleased to be talking to you. I, I want to first of all tell you that I took your book with me when I went away for the summer, and I read it extremely carefully. Um, I, I mean, I cannot tell you um, how interesting I found it, and so well-researched, so vividly written. Honestly, this isn't flattery, but I really did feel this was a, a very important and worthwhile book and that you'd put a lot of effort into it. Is, is that right? Yeah, well, I'd first let me thank you so much for that. That's really means a lot coming from your gutter. And yes, I mean, like a book like this took years, research, declassified documents, sources, legal issues, all that stuff you can imagine. And yeah, I was saying before you came on that the response, the book came out in May, and we might talk about this in the conversation, but the book came out globally in May. It's coming out in translations next year. And the response has been really extraordinary, one of the best I've ever had in the work I've done, just in terms of people's openness, engagement. There's been some criticism, all the usual stuff that you'd expect, but putting that aside, it's been remarkable. So I've been, and it's just, it continues. And I think people are really, as Eleanor was just saying, a host a minute ago, that she is someone who, you know, works on Palestine or as an advocate for Palestine, but there's so much in there that people didn't know. I mean, I mean, you probably did know, Garda, but yeah, it's, I appreciate that. I really do appreciate it. It's been a monumental work. It took years, as books like this always do. And should, if, if we're going to cover the sort of it's a 75-year-old uh, occupation, right, with it, it, like incredibly multifaceted work, as, you know, both of your uh, works are in uh, God, You've had a, a recent uh, publication on uh, the One State Solution. I really want to dive into both of those. But before we do, I want to do a little bit of groundwork, myth-busting stuff in that area, because when we talk about Israel-Palestine question is discussed or the occupation is discussed, it's sometimes framed as a conflict. The conflict between Israel on one hand and Palestine on the other, as though we're talking about two comparable nations mm -hmm. or two comparable states, right? This is obviously extremely far from the case, but I was wondering if you could kind of give us an idea of, I guess, mm -hmm. what that looks like on the ground, what kind of governance looks like on the ground like for Palestine like in, in what sense do uh, like Palestinians have any kind of say over their own territory at the moment? Anthony? Well Palestinians really all Palestinians both in Israel itself and under occupation live under a form of occupation I mean obviously a Palestinian in Gaza lives, lives a different life to say a Palestinian in Tel Aviv for example that's true but the reality is that when people talk about Israel and Palestine is in two equal sides. They can't work it out. Why can't they just get in a room? And I often have people say to me, why can't two leaderships just get in a room and work it out? As if that hasn't been tried for decades. But the truth is that there's not two equal sides. There is a occupied people and an occupying people. And I obviously speak as someone as who's a Jew. I mean, I'm a secular, I call myself an atheist Jew. I'm not an Israeli citizen. I could be, as some people will be aware. As a Jew, I have the right to go to Israel tomorrow. I lived there for many years, but I was definitely not a citizen. I was there as a journalist. But I have the right to go there tomorrow 
If I can prove my Jewishness, I can be a, I can become a citizen within two or three months. And I've always made the decision politically not to do that out of solidarity with Palestinians, but also the deep racism that's inherent within that. I'm a German citizen and an Australian citizen for various reason. I was born in Australia, but I have German heritage and um, my family were killed in the Holocaust. Most of my family were killed in the Holocaust. And for those who don't know, Germans gave passports to or citizenship to people after the Holocaust who lost it during the Holocaust. But I'm not an Israeli citizen. And I mention all that as detail because when people talk about two equal sides, it's firstly historically inaccurate. It would be you know, equally talking about the idea somehow that an occupied people should be almost begging for equal rights, that somehow Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza or East Jerusalem or Haifa or wherever they may live should somehow be begging almost to Israel or the international community for equal rights. And too often in 2023 and, frankly, for really much of Israel's existence in the last 75-odd years, Palestinian leadership has been, in my view, deeply problematic. Now, obviously, I'm generalising. There are exceptions, of course. When I talk about leadership, I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority in the modern era and Hamas. Now, the book, my book doesn't overly talk a lot about them. I've spoken about them elsewhere, but they are, in my view, uh, deeply problematic organisations, corrupt and in many ways serving the interests of Israel. But ultimately, ultimately and crucially, Israel is the occupying power. That is ultimately the point, and I'll finish on this point, that there was a comment years ago by one of the uh, US so-called Jewish leaders who were working on negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians, which of course has failed forever. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, America is basically Israel's lawyer. And what essentially he meant by that term was that when the US puts itself in the supposed middle of these so-called negotiations for decades, their interest and agenda is supporting Israel. It's nothing to do with Palestinians. And this doesn't matter, by the way, whether it's Donald Trump in the White House or Joe Biden or Obama or George W. Bush or Clinton or someone else. It does not make a difference. And 30 years after the so-called Oslo Accords, which is essentially happening at the moment, it's pretty clear that that kind of capitulation politics has been a complete disaster for the Palestinians, but a wonderful success for the Israeli settler right. All the time that I've uh, kind of heard about this conflict or occupation more accurately, certainly while I was growing up, the two-state solution was always promoted as like, this is the kind of automatically diplomatic and fair-minded and prudent solution to what's happening in this particular area of the Middle East. And as you're saying, Anthony, there's a lot of, you know, well, why can't they just solve their differences, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm kind of wondering how we got there, right? Like how did the kind of two-state solution become this sort of automatic foil that's brought out when discussions about some kind of peace settlement are talked about? Uh, God, you write about what that has looked like on the ground as well, say the Camp David negotiations in, I think it was 2000, correct me if I'm wrong here. Yes. Look, I, um, I, th- I really think in order to make sense of all this, one has to remember that it's all in the framing. And I have to say that the Zionists were brilliant at framing this whole story. First of all, of course, falsely, but much more importantly, from the point of view of the consequences, was that they framed it in such a way right from early on that subsequent 
observers, politicians, um, public opinion was influenced by that framing. And what I mean is that when the Zionist movement, and I have to go right back, I'm sorry if you know, people you know, ask themselves, what the hell are we doing talking about the 19th century? <laughs> you have to, because you will never understand this unless you do that. Right at the beginning, at the end of the 19th century, when a small bunch of people who had made a decision that the only way forward for Jews in Europe, which is what was in their minds, would be to have a state of their own. And, of course, when they realized that um, you can't just do that, you have to make it attractive, you have to make it convincing and plausible, they hit on the Bible. And so, from the beginning, we had this story framed as a, a biblical people who had come from this place, Palestine, and who had been dispersed over the countries and over the centuries. And what more natural than, they, than that they should want to come home, they want to come back. So my point is that right from the beginning, this was how the story was presented. It disguised the reality, which is that a bunch of people who had absolutely no legitimate rights to any part of Palestine, worked on imperial powers, mainly Britain, to create for themselves a space in which they could make this state for Jews. So that's the story. And you see, once you've got that framing, once people know, know it or think they understand it as, as such, the two-state solution is only one of the consequences of that. It's inevitable because, you, you see, if this is the land of the Jews and there were these non-Jews who were sort of sitting there and they, God knows where they came from, but the point is it's the land of the Jews who have a perfect right to want to go home or to want to live there or whatever, then everything that the land of the Jews offers to these non-Jewish communities, as the Palestinians like me, uh, is a concession. You can see that. It follows. So therefore, your starting point is false. It, the starting point, which should have been, of course, that this is a settler movement, that it's a colonial settler movement, which aimed from the beginning to displace the local population, people like me, and take our place. That's what it is. However, you can't sell something like that. You, you can't. So you have to talk this stuff about the, you know, the, the ancient homeland and the land of our forefathers and all this business. So the two-state solution, I prefer for people to understand it in that context. The two-state solution in itself is deeply unfair. It's unfair to the indigenous people, which people like myself. It's unfair because it proposes dividing the original Palestinian homeland, the land of Palestine, into unequal parts. 78% goes to the settlers and, you know, the rest, 22%, goes to the indigenous native people. So for a start, this is unfair. Uh, and anyway, it's uh, frankly academic because it's not happening and it's not likely to happen. But, you know, I just want to end on this. 
I wish there was some way in which we could reform the vocabulary, the terminology which we use when we talk about this situation. If we talked about it as it really is, that is, a settler community making demands, punishing people who stand in the way of its settlement plans, if it were presented like that, then you would get slowly people would begin to understand what the hell is going on here. And when we talk about, uh, you mentioned sort of what can be sold Right. There is this sort of strange contradiction sometimes between the Hasbara line of Israel as this sort of insuperable moral project and the way they, you know, sometimes like to live tweet their own war crimes in this way that is, you know, increasingly feels sort of bizarrely uh, shameless and sort of hard to reconcile in some ways with other forms of maybe a slightly older form of Israeli uh, international diplomacy. And Anthony, your book, The Palestine Laboratory, much talks about the flaunting in some ways of the severity and the violence of the occupation as something that can be thought of not so much in terms of international diplomacy, but in terms of advertising. Absolutely. Then one of the things, that, I guess one of the reasons I wrote the book and I was living in East Jerusalem for many years between 2016 and 2020, and I'd been visiting Palestine for about 20 years now, every three or four years reporting as a journalist from the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel itself. And one of the things I really wanted to try to do, it touches on what you just said, which is the situation for Palestinians is bad enough, and it's not by any means to minimise that. But what I started seeing was that the occupation wasn't staying there. It wasn't just affecting and impacting Palestinians, as bad enough as that was in Palestine. The occupation essentially was being exported around the world. Not just the tools and technologies that Israel has used to do that. So in the modern era, drones, spyware, facial recognition technology, biometric tools, all the tools of repression that Israel tests on Palestinians in Palestine. But the huge numbers of other nations also want a piece of that. So I see it as both a financial aspect. Yes, Israel wants to sell all these tools to huge numbers of countries. And as I calculate in the book, I think I say in the book over 125 countries, but in fact, I would note just this week, Haaretz, the Israeli uh, Jewish newspaper, had a report that found that in the last few years, 145 nations had purchased some form of Israeli drone technology. Now, that is a huge number of nations, suffice to say, the majority of nations on the planet. And the reason I think all this is important is not just, as I said, for me, writing about the tools and technology, it's also the idea in some form of ethno-nationalism, the idea that that can be exported as an idea, the idea also of getting away with it. I speak a lot about this in the book, and I think that's relevant when you look at a country, for example, like India. Now, India is doing horrible things because India. It's not doing it because of Israel. Of course, uh, the Hindu fundamentalist regime of Prime Minister Modi has its own internal logic. And India, tragically and concerningly, as the world's largest nation now, is becoming a Hindu fundamentalist state with very little Western pressure because it's not China. We all know the reason why. But what disturbs me is that the example or the inspiration that Israel is providing a nation like India, which is not really a secret. I mean, Indian officials openly talk about the inspiration of what's happening in the West Bank, wanting to do similar things, for example, in Kashmir, wanting to settle Muslim-majority areas with Hindus from the South, 
which is what India is doing right now. So the relationship is partly a defence relationship, but it's also ideological alignment between them. And the reason that's important, I think, in the 21st century, and partly why I wrote the book really, is to say this book is also a warning. It's to say as more and more of the world is moving to the right, obviously you can't generalise, there are some that are moving to the left, but in general, although public opinion in much of the West actually is moving towards Palestine, public opinion polls reflect that in the US, UK, parts of Europe, in my birth country, Australia. Having said that, that's the positive aspect of it. Public opinion is shifting. The more disturbing aspect is that many parts of the global right and far right increasingly view Israel as a model, a nation to mimic and copy and get inspiration from, and weapons are simply part of that, but also an inspiration of building, if they want to create a Hindu fundamentalist state or a Christian fundamentalist state or a Muslim fundamentalist state, whatever it may be, Israel is the model. Israel arguably is the ultimate model because it's complete global impunity. No one is really pressuring Israel to change, and that, I think, is very attractive to many other nations. Garda, can you tell us a little bit more about the continuities maybe between like this form of settler colonial project and other forms of settler colonial projects? When one criticizes Israel, often get uh, the uh, get the immediate retort that like, well, you know, why don't why aren't you criticizing other nations? And you know, great, let's talk about it. Let's talk about uh, the settler colonial projects in general. Because something that I always, you know, my mind always goes to is the way in which this was established by the Brits, at least, you know, in uh, in large part. We had a lot of experience by that time in this whole settler colonialism gig, and that has only continued. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, if you think about the Balfour Declaration, 1917, where a British foreign colonial secretary, Arthur Balfour, quite happily and nonchalantly made some kind of a pledge to a bunch of Zionists in in England to enable them to uh, allow people like them into a country, an Arab country, Palestine, which had absolutely nothing to do with Britain in 2017, and say, yes, you're welcome to bring Jewish people into that country. I mean, so right from the beginning, how could that have happened? One has to ask oneself. Well, the answer is clear. What you've just alluded to, colonial mindset, natives, natives, that is people like us who are living in Palestine, are of no account. It's a kind of imperial disdain. You know, they don't really count. So whether you bring somebody from outside in or throw some of them out or kill some of them, doesn't really matter. They're of no account anyway. So that is the mindset to begin with. But, you know, having said that, it's very good that we're talking about settler colonialism because that's the prism through which one has to see this, quite honestly. When one talks about parallels, I tell you, I've thought a lot about this. There is no exact parallel to Israel. There really isn't. There are near examples. So if you think about South Africa, which is often produced as a sort of parallel case. It's not. But that is not to say that lessons cannot be learned about how to resist a supremacist 
uh, governing uh, elite and a supremacist mindset, which was a white mindset, in, in, in South Africa. But the Afrikaners never aimed to displace the, the blacks to, to, and to take their place. In Palestine, we know that that was the, the point, to get rid of the native population and take their place. Now, you could also talk about, or some another near parallel might be Australia, Canada, in which you, of course, where Anthony now lives, is a place where the indigenous people were virtually exterminated. But again, it's, the idea is the same as Zionism, so meaning you have to get rid of them and take their place. Okay, it's the same idea. But don't forget that they did largely succeed, that the colonists were able to destroy, decimate, and disappear the majority of the indigenous population. The problem for Israel was that they didn't succeed in doing that. They were able to get rid of three quarters of the population of Palestine in 1948 when Israel was established, but not 100%. And not only that, instead of, as in the case of Aboriginals or, 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 or in the case of Canada, these were communities which were relatively cut off anyway and they were isolated, they had no natural allies. In the case of the Palestinians, there is an Arab world, which is the natural ally of the Palestinians. So, you know, there's no exact parallel. However, Israel has made a very great success of this. It's clear that it's been highly successful. And Antony's book, you know, if you had any doubts about it, <laughs> you read his book and you see how far they've got. Now, there is, of course... There's no magic to this. There is no magic. Because remember, the nascent Israeli state received massive amounts of aid from outside. The West supported it, nurtured it, gave it money, diplomatic and political uh, support, and aid and, and helped it in numerous ways. Now, with that massive amount of aid, I can't think that there would be many populations who wouldn't have done well. You know, so they've done well. And if you add to that, the thing that Anthony's book makes so clear and that you brought up is the question of impunity. It's, you know, you, believe me, you, you do very well if... Uh, uh, whatever you did, nobody <laughs> held you to account. So you walked into a shop, stole, you, you, you entered the building, threw the people out, took their homes, all this stuff, no, no punishment, no accountability. Fantastic. So what's to stop you? Um, you know, but I, I do hope we get round to, at some point, we need to talk about what are we going to do about all this, you know, I think that, I mean, not only my own work, but so many other people and the books and the writings of Anthony paint a picture which makes it very clear that this, this state, the state of Israel, is a focus for 
all kinds of, I don't want to use too emotive a language, worrying, very worrying things that they're exporting to the world, that they are involved in. And if you look at the whole field of weapons making and surveillance at which they're experts, these are merchants of death. So, you know, it's how, how long should one go on? And this is a question I put to Anthony. How long should one go on describing, detailing, researching into the horrors that the state of Israel is responsible for? How long do you not, you're going to do that before you say, how are we going to end this? How are we going to stop it? What are we going to do about it? So maybe, you know, I look forward to what Anthony says, but then that might be a point at which we talk about the future and what's, what's, what's going to come out of all this. Mm, I definitely want to circle back to that because you're completely right. Um, we can talk endlessly. We can talk till uh, the cows come home about sort of the state of affairs. But of course, the, you know, as ever, the important question is what is to be done? But I would like to kind of stay with the diagnosis portion for a little bit, because Anthony, I'd like to ask you just in a bit more detail about what your book lays out in terms of the relationship between the state and private industry in Israel, because you explain in detail about Israel's very heavy economic reliance in some ways on military industries and the kind of technologies of sort of surveillance and sort of domestic and foreign warfare and its relationship really between that sort of domestic if you like policy in Israel and Israel's role as an outpost of US foreign policy the US of course also being some kind of you know military industrial complex with a state unevenly gaffer taped to the arse end if you'll excuse my language I like that description. Uh, the one thing I show in the book is that Israel, of course, was founded in 1948 and pretty soon afterwards, I'd say not from necessarily day one, but certainly within a decade or so, there was an awareness by the Israeli elites that they had to make friends, which is on the face of it not particularly surprising a new state would do. But the way they did that, and this accelerated after 1967, the Six-Day War, when Israel, of course, took control of West Bank, um, Gaza, East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights is a, an awareness that two things. One, there were huge amounts of nations around the world that were interested in buying Israeli weapons and guns at the time. Of course, this is before the digital era, which we'll get to in a minute, the surveillance era, which we're into today. But also, as I show in detail, a lot of nations after 1967 really admired what Israel was doing in the occupation. Now, what I mean by that is they wanted to get a piece of that experience. So I detail in the book, for example, a lot about the 70s and 80s with the US-led dirty wars in Latin and South America, for example. And one of the responses to many people to the book that I've had in the last month since it came out was, we knew there's a knowledge of sorts on the left about the US role in Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, all these nations in the 70s and 80s that the US was backing the worst dictatorships, death squads, often genocide. What is less known is the Israeli involvement, much, much less known. And I'm not saying I'm the first one to, to reveal that, but a lot of people have said that it's it came as a real shock to them that what often I think happened in the 60s and 70s and continues to this day in a way is that Israel in some ways has become the US wingman. 
in much of the world. And I have all these quotes in the book of Israeli officials really saying our role as Israel should be that. We should complement, support the US at times where even they themselves, for example, can't actually support repressive regimes. So there were times where in the US Congress, even during the Reagan era, where certain regimes couldn't be supported because of some you know, bleeding hearts who said, maybe we shouldn't support death squads. But Israel was right there supporting all these regimes. Now, the reason all that's relevant, I think, today is in the modern era is that I see the Israeli arms industry as an insurance policy for Israel. And that global impunity is not solely about the arms industry, but it's definitely a huge part of it. And what I mean by that is that there's a reason, I think, that Israel enjoys this impunity that we talk about, that... Yes, you know, people often say, look at the UN votes and it looks like the whole world's against Israel. There's six countries on one side, normally US, Israel, a handful of Pacific islands and sadly often my country, Australia, and the rest of the world on the other side. So on the face of it, it seems like, wow, there's so much pressure on Israel to change and, and you know, where is, when is that happening? Well, as of course we know, nothing really does happen and there really is no pressure on Israel to do so. I see the arms industry as a key factor there, which is not discussed enough. So Israel is the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world now. And it sells weapons to, as I said, we don't even know the exact number, to be honest, but the number I have in the book is over roughly 125. It's likely to be more. There's very few nations that it won't sell to. And when Garda spoke before, and I guess we'll come to this, about what to do about that, well, there's various things. I mean, I very much support boycott, divestment and sanctions, but it needs to be in some ways more than that. I mean, not that that's not important, it is. But at the moment, so many nations are so keen for Israeli experience, for Israeli weapons, because they're seen as being effective. This is the brutal reality. They are seen as being effective in repressing Palestinians in Palestine. As I show in the book, huge numbers of countries are desperate to see videos and actual hard evidence of Israeli weapons being used on Palestinians and to see how, in inverted commas, effective they are. They want a piece of that. There's a reason why, for example, a few months ago, Israel released its 2022 arms sales. Uh, And we always presume they're an underestimate, but let's assume that they're true for argument's sake. It was $12.5 billion, which is double what it was a number of years ago. 24% of that were to Arab countries. Now, when Garda speaks before about the Arab world, I agree with her. Obviously, the Arab regimes, not the Arab people. That's an important distinction. But there's a reason that Arab regimes are desperate now, sort of falling over themselves to befriend Israel. And why is that? Yes, it's partly as a way to get to Washington, but it's also because Israel is selling the most effective repressive tech in the world, really, spyware, surveillance technology. So there's a reason why Saudi, Bahrain, UAE, Morocco, and if Saudi, if Saudi, the US and Israel strike some deal that obviously the Biden administration's pushing. No one thinks it's going to help the Palestinians. No one believes that because it won't. I mean, it has nothing to do with the Palestinians. I mean, one reads in the press in the last weeks that the Saudis have no interest. I mean, they say they're talking about the Saudi leadership, have no interest in helping the Palestinians at all. So that really, to me, brings up a pretty serious question. I'll leave it at this. Civil society, in a way, has never been more supportive of Palestine globally. But in terms of nation states, I would argue Palestinians are in a pretty grim situation right now. 
that there aren't that many nation states really anywhere. Yes, there are some who leaders who express support for Palestine, the leader of Brazil. I'm not minimizing any of that. But in general, in terms of action, there are very few nation states that are doing much about that. And the Arab world, which in the past has at least given a degree of support to Palestinians, giving them comfort, giving them citizenship, I mean, often in a very, I mean, Lebanon's an example where they've been treated horribly, but it's a complicated picture. But now the rush is to, to bond with Israel and get repressive technology. So that, to me, presents an opportunity for Palestinians in the, both in Palestine and the Palestinian diaspora to say, where are our alliances going to be? And this, again, is not for me to say where that should be. I have my views. I mean, I'm Jewish in the diaspora. I think it's, I mean, I, I, I can express what I want if you want later, but ultimately that to me is a question for Palestinians. Where, where, is it, where are these allyships coming from? Where will they build? And with Israel's high-tech surveillance repressive technology, that's a seriously big challenge. I have a quote in the book, I'll finish with this, where it's from Itai Mack, who's a really great Israeli human rights lawyer. And he essentially says, I haven't got the quote in front of me, so forgive me, I'm paraphrasing, something like, uh, Israeli repressive surveillance technology allows the user to find the next Nelson Mandela before he even knows he's Nelson Mandela. <laughs> meaning, right, essentially meaning that any kind of communication, action, whatever it may be, is discovered by a nation state before he or she recognises maybe their potential. That is the horrific power of Israeli repressive technology. And that's a challenge. And there's no easy solution to that. I agree with Anthony. It's Got very, it. very grim. And, and the situation in the Arab world is indeed, as he said, Arab governments are not, have not been helpful to the Palestine cause in recent years. After 48, when they did give, they did host, and we have to accept that and admit it and, and, and thank them that they played host to the whole flux of Palestinians that were expelled by the Zionists in 1948 and still do to this day. Uh, nevertheless, they're not willing to support the Palestine cause in any meaningful sense. The Arab people remain sympathetic to the Palestinians, as indeed is the case in the West. It's exactly the same, where ordinary people, civil society supports the Palestinians, no official body uh, government does anywhere. So that's the position. That's the reality. Now, where do we go from there? Because you can see, can't you, that it's going to be a case of more of the same, isn't it? If nothing is done about Israel, then it will continue along this path. It, it, in, in a way, it has no choice. It has to make itself relevant. You know, I mean, one thing that I'm, unfortunately, probably not the time, but, you know, one thing one needs to ask oneself, you know, what, what, what on earth do people think they're doing when they set themselves up in a region to which they do not belong and where they have excited hostility. People don't like the, the state of Israel. They don't, the Arabs don't want it in their midst. So why would you, if you were a, a, a citizen of the state of Israel, why would you insist that, you know, that it's got to work? 
you you can see that it's very difficult. It's making it work is so difficult. It's a full-time job. I mean, let's face that. They have to make themselves relevant, have to prove their constantly, that prove their their legitimacy, their right to be there, and so on. That's another completely different story. So what about these poor Palestinians? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to them? What, they just stay there and, and get more of them killed and uh, all those techniques that Anthony described so well used against them, more and more sophisticated, etc., etc.? Well, there are people, and I'm one of them, who not only doesn't accept that as the, as the destiny of Palestinians, but believes that there is a way in which something can be done about this. My recent book, One State, talks about exactly these ideas, that in the end, in the end, I happen to believe that sort of situation which you now have in Israel, what looks like a highly successful Israel, but a situation in which a sizable number of people, nearly five million people, five million people, are being ruled by the Israeli state and are given no rights, whatever, and many of them are very unhappy about it. And so if you look at historically at a thing like that, it doesn't last. It doesn't tend to last. Things happen, and what you get is disorder, and you get social unrest, and you get problems. So isn't there anything better that we can think of in this way? Is there no nothing we can work towards which actually recognizes all these aspects and tries to answer the question, what do we have to do to ensure that there is a viable future for the people who live in that territory, where it is not necessary to oppress and deprive half the population of its rights and for the other half to reserve for itself all the privileges it can think of. Now, isn't there another way that we can work this out? Now, I think that there is another way. And I, I and others like me believe that the best way to treat with this atrocious situation is to create a democratic government in place of the current Israeli government, the current Israeli ruling regime, which is a regime of apartheid, and the regime of injustice and inequality, to replace that with a government which is truly democratic, in which all the people who live in that territory are treated equally. They have equal citizenship, equal rights, and can look to a future of dignity and decency in their own homeland. That is what I believe. And when it comes to 
the ability to coordinate and, and discuss the various possibilities of, you know, how we might achieve a kind of a peaceful and democratic and long-lasting settlement in the area of occupied Palestine. Of course, we're going to be talking about that on the internet. We live in the digital age. And Anthony, as you've laid out, that can get extremely thorny, extremely tricky when it comes to the relationship between social media companies and, you know, Israel as a sort of an economic unit, like sort of another state as an economic unit, and also the existence of Palestinian voices more generally. Can you tell us a bit about that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, for decades and decades, and this is really borne out by hard evidence of studying the major newspapers in the US, the Washington Post, New York Times, Palestinian voices are almost absent for decades. I'm talking about decades and decades. I have a quote in the book. I think it was a academic study from a few years ago, it looked at how many Palestinians are actually writing an op-ed in the New York Times for over a 40-year period. It was like 2%. This is until recently. I mean, Palestinians were mostly absent. They didn't exist. And this, of course, was, as I said at the beginning, and we haven't talked much about this, and I obviously say this as a journalist myself, who's written on a range of issues for the last 20 years, obviously Palestine, but also the wars in Afghanistan and the drug war and disaster capitalism, lots of issues that the media on so many issues fails regularly to actually give voice to people who are not the established order. And that could be Palestinians or victims of the drug war or whatever it may be. And the reason that's important, I think, is that the way that Israel has recognised the threat from the Facebooks, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok and others is an attempt to try to bully them to censor or shadow ban Palestinian voices. And on the one hand, as I detail in the book, there's been success with that to an extent. A lot of people's voices have been suppressed or disappeared. At the other stage, actually, it's been a complete abysmal failure. And what I mean by that is that I think there's very much a connection between the growth in not just the West but the world in general to support, understand and show solidarity with Palestinians not because of the mainstream press, in spite of the mainstream press. Obviously, there's some good journalists in the media and a lot of newspapers. I'm not saying they don't exist. They do. Of course they do. And, in fact, in the last few years, the New York Times, that very pro-Israel paper, has occasionally had some more critical reporting. There's a slight shift going on there, very small. But I think much more significant, actually, is the role of Palestinians being heard in their own voices, in their own lands, in their own territory, being heard on millions of people's phones or computers, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it may be, almost documenting their lives. This is what my life is as a Palestinian. This is what it looks like. This is what I do. And I'm not saying everything is about apartheid. It sometimes might be about that, but also is about what's my day-to-day life like? What is my school like? What is my family like? It's a range. It's a nuance. It's actually giving Palestinians a voice. And as much as I've spent a lot of my professional life condemning, criticising and challenging social media companies. I'm not a, a fan of Mark Zuckerberg, I can assure you, or people like that. The truth is that those organisations, those massive firms, have actually provided a voice. I don't mean that they've done it, you know, because they're good people. I'm saying that Palestinians have taken taken charge and they've actually given themselves, they've, they've actually put themselves on these platforms in major, major ways. So unless they these companies are going to censor every single Palestinian, which they're not doing. And I should add as a caveat to that, that one thing I show in the book is that how all these social media companies often censor Palestinian voices is not just happening to Palestinians. 
In other words, regularly Facebook and others, the way they view the world is very much through the State Department lens. I'm not saying the State Department's directing their activities day to day, although they're very close to the State Department. I mean that the worldview is very much similar to the State Department. So if there's a certain designated enemy, so to speak, of Washington, there's a good chance those people, those voices will be censored or disappeared. If they're a so-called friend of Washington, they're much more likely to get favourable treatment. And Palestinians, let's face it, are not particularly fond of Washington and the feeling is mutual. So I think in some ways having all those Palestinians online active, despite all the challenges, and I'm not minimising any of that, including, I might add, from the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, who regularly censor and challenge Palestinian critics as well, the Israeli military in the West Bank routinely jails people for Facebook posts. And I might add, so is the Palestinian Authority as well. The only democracy in the Middle East. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, the PA does that as well, to be clear. It's not just Israel. But of course, the PA is Israel's, you know, occupation contractor, as we know. So I think ultimately, yes, there are profound challenges for Palestinians to be heard online. But despite all those challenges... I think a profound change in the last 10 or 15 years is the mass number of Palestinians who are online, who are actually breaking through what I see to some extent as a mainstream media blackout in many ways or incredibly bad, poor, blind, pro-Israel talking point media. And that's challenging the perception. I mean, that's impacting both the mainstream It's impacting the Jewish communities in the West, of which I'm a part. I think there's definitely, as I say in many places, there's a Jewish insurgency going on within the Jewish community in many Western countries, particularly the US. I don't know to exaggerate that, but there is a shift going on, particularly with younger Jews who are saying, not in my name. Like, I'm not going to support Israel because my father or grandfather or grandmother did. I'm not going to support an apartheid state. And they're often getting active and challenging in the US, a Democratic Party or whoever it may be. Now, that's not having major impact today or tomorrow on Joe Biden's policies. I don't want to suggest that it does. But it's profoundly changing and it's threatening Jewish diaspora support for Israel, which has been a major crux of Israel for 75-odd years. And if that starts to break down, which I think it will, Israel has two choices that either essentially says who cares what Jews want anyway, even though we're a Jewish state, or they pivot as they're trying to do now to evangelicals. Let me just finish on this point. One thing that strikes me is, you know, we talk a lot about, as Garda rightly says, Israel's a settler colonial state and their aim is to settle as much land as possible and bring as many Jews there as possible. But they're actually running out of Jews. (laughs) Now, what I mean by that is they're running out of Jews to settle Palestinian land. The vision of the far right in Israel is literally millions and millions of settlers occupying that land. Where are they going to come from? There literally aren't that many Jews moving there. What I have argued for a while is what I think Israel is going to start doing more, and it's already starting to do this is, is encouraging evangelicals to move to the West Bank as settlers, either converting to Judaism or essentially becoming, as they often are, very hardline pro-Israel supporters. I don't see any reason why in the long term Israel wouldn't potentially do that, to sort of get warm bodies on the ground, so to speak, because increasingly the Israeli right recognises that the liberal Judaism, with all its faults and problems, is increasingly turning away from Israel. That's the reality, particularly younger Jews in the US. 
So Israel's got a problem on its hands, which I think it's created itself. It's horribly, horribly, darkly funny to see that, you know, if we think about like the settlement as a as a very standard capitalist hand in glove relationship between state and, you know, extractive project, which, you know, needs foot soldiers to realize it. And, you know, if they're Jewish, great, because that sort of connects with uh, the sort of Hasbara that uh, we use to justify our own existence. But if they happen to be evangelicals who are also very deeply anti-Semitic, fine. If yeah. we want to sell um, you know, our arms to very deeply anti-Semitic regimes across the world, Viktor Orban, fine. Because at the end of the day, this is much more similar to the kinds of incentive structures and the kind of governance structures of business as usual than we might necessarily like to admit. Hmm. Well, it's dressed up, obviously, as Garda rightly says, as a moral project. I mean, that's obviously how it gets away with it to an extent. But ultimately, I don't think Israel's sole existence is because of the arms it's selling. Not Not that you've suggested that, but my book, of course, doesn't argue that. It's not simply if the arms industry stopped tomorrow, for example, or... U.S. military aid stop tomorrow to Israel, which interestingly enough, I think could potentially happen. Israel would be fine without it. Israel doesn't need U.S. military aid. That's not the benefit that Israel gets. What Israel needs is protection in international forums. It needs to be protected from the ICC, International Criminal Court. It needs protection from a range of other bodies. The military aid, I mean, many on the Israeli right are now saying, we don't want American aid. We don't need it. We don't need the money. I mean, they honestly don't need the money anymore. So if that ended tomorrow, which let's be clear, it won't under Joe Biden, but if it ended tomorrow, Israel would be just fine. Yeah. It'd be just fine. There's lots of other supporters in the world who are growing as well. Go on, Garda. Um, I must say, Anthony's put his finger on a very important aspect of Israel's existence, and that is the need to be legitimate. You know, it's very interesting that this particular settler colony was never content with having got the land and expelled the people, taken their place, created a state for themselves. It was never enough. They really needed to have global recognition that they were right to do it. It's really very interesting that. And that they are within their rights to actually take somebody else's country, throw them out, and take their place. That that is actually not only a reality, a fact, but it has to be sort of affirmed by being granted approval as something which is their right. Now, for this search for legitimacy has never gone away from Israel. They look for it all the time, which is why you so rightly say, Anthony, that the thing that really bothers them is being exposed, that they, they, the fellow Jews should turn against them, that then it becomes there's question marks about whether really this is the sort of project they're trying to sell to the world, that it's a moral necessity and a moral project. But if one were to sort of shift the discussion onto Israel itself, which we're already doing, and look at the 
recent demonstrations, which began at the, at the beginning of the year, which have sort of divided the country between the, the people who are ostensibly protesting against the weakening of the court, the, the Supreme Court, and the people who want to do it, so want to weaken it. So ostensibly, I say, because of course, it's about something else. And it, it's not least about this idea of liberal Zionists. The image that Israel was desperate to present to the world is that it's people like us. They're a kind of a liberal democracy, rather like Western states. That's, that's the presentation. The reality, of course, is completely different. But this is what they tried to sell for so long, knowing very well that if they are presented as people like us, Western support will continue. Because after all, you support people who are a bit like you and who are beleaguered or something's happening to them. And now, when that starts to break down so that the, the, the so-called liberal constituency in Israel begins to rebel against the, the reality, which is that you've got hardline nationalists who use Judaism quite conveniently to support their case, um, when that sort of begins to show, then, you know, Israel is in trouble. It really, Israel is in trouble. Because what I can imagine is the first thing that should be occurring to liberal people on this side of the world is that they need to ask themselves, what is this state, actually, that we've been supporting for all these decades? What is it? It seems to be full of people who want the whole place for themselves and are very nasty to anybody who doesn't agree with them. You know, it's very unappealing. And that's on one side. Now, the other side, which shows you, see, the Israeli project was really stupid, in my opinion, apart from the fact that it had terrible effects on, on people like me and it's very damaging. It's, it's actually stupid because the idea that you can really live a normal life in an area where you've imposed yourself by violence and by military superiority, that you can actually have a normal life, make normal friends with the people around you, is stupid. Not going to happen. So forever they have to strong, they have to fight, they have to shut people up, they have to erase the past. They have to silence Palestinians and anybody who supports them. It's ongoing. They can never rest for five minutes. And that never needed to happen, by the way. I mean, it never needed to happen. It never needed to be a state of Israel. So let's talk about the one-state solution. Um, I'd love to stay with you, Gerda, because sometimes we have different ideas of what that might be look like? There are sort of binational solutions or solutions that kind of emphasize that we have to dig down into a like an ethno-nationalist form of thinking and sort of govern two different ethno-nationalist projects on the same territory. And there are also more kind of secular democratic versions of it. What do you envisage when you think of a kind of a positive, a peaceful, a democratic one-state solution? I'm also very curious about the way in which you say that, like, listen, Israel's actions are making that way, way more likely than any talk of a two-state solution. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, if you actually look at the map, what you'll see is that the territory between the, the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River is one single territory with one government, the Israeli government. The, the only um, problem is that the population that the Israeli government rules in this one territory is half and half, uh, half Palestinian Arab, half Israeli Jews. So indeed, you already have a one state. The issue then would be to transform the current apartheid discriminatory regime that rules this one state into one which is democratic, which is a, like a, 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 a liberal democracy on the Western model. Now, in terms of binationalism, I do not consider that binationalism is either the answer, nor is it what I'm talking about. Because binationalism, by definition, posits that there are two equivalent communities in this piece of land, equally valid, equally legitimate. Now, that is actually not correct, because one is a settler colonial community, which was imposed on that territory, and that has a belief that it is entitled and it's supremacist and is privileged, and it practices those things, whereas the other are the native population of Palestine. These are not equivalent groups. So there is no bi-nationalism at all. What there is, and what there should be, in my opinion, is a democracy in which, irrespective of people's ethnic or religious origin, they are equal citizens of this one democratic constitution. That's, for me, in my opinion, the, the, the way forward, the way forward. So before you say anything more, let me just say to you that about this idea, for, first of all, is not new. It's not new to me. It was created by the Palestine Liberation Organization in 1969. A remarkable move, except, of course, you, you very rarely hear it described in that way because it was squashed by the Israelis very, very rapidly. The idea that a people so abused by the settlers should actually say to them, let's live together, let's do it in equality and equal citizenship is remarkable. So anyway, I just make the point that this is not a new idea from the Palestinian side. And with time, it receded because the two-state solution took over and people started talking about that. And... Um, now it surfaced again, and in my view, quite rightly, because it's the only way forward out of this mess. Now, of course, I say that as a Palestinian who has been dispossessed and who does not look forward to the idea of dying in foreign lands. I really don't want that to happen. And the only way that it's not going to happen is if I can return to my country. So... There is another way, you know, to present the, the one-state idea. There's been a tendency, I think, to worry very much about Israel and what's going to happen to the Jewish community and stuff like that. 
But if you look at the Palestinians, sorry, there are people, five to six million refugees in camps, quite apart from millions like me, who are not in camps, but who are in exile. Now, what about us? What about us? Don't we need a solution? And I would say, yes, we do. And we have the, the priority. We are a priority because this was done to us. We didn't do it to anybody. It was done to us. And so we are owed. Frankly, we are owed our original homeland. And all I'm doing is putting forward a humane idea of how that can be done, which does not involve more bloodshed, violence, hatred, brutality, so-called terrorism. If we could get disagreed and if it could happen, I think no right-thinking person could possibly disagree that it is the only solution. I know that it will mean the end of Israel. And what I mean by that, the Israel that exists today, an Israel of, uh, uh, with an exclusive citizenry, which is an apartheid state and which is oppressive and is responsible for an awful lot of criminal acts against the Palestinian people. That's the Israel that I'd like to see the end of. And replaced by the dispensation I've just been talking about. Now, in case anybody listening to this says, oh, yes, what a lovely idea. It's utopian. It's great. Of course, it will never happen. You know this. Actually, to borrow from the Zionists, from Herzl, who the original political Zionist, who said, I quote, if you will it, it is not a dream. Now, he was talking about taking over my country. So that was what he was talking about, saying, if you want it enough, it's not a fantasy, it's not a dream. And I say the same about this. This, with much more morality and justification than Theodor Herzl, I'm saying that if we believe in this as the ultimate end to the outcome, I cannot call it a solution, it's an outcome. If we believe that this is the only reasonable, decent outcome from this awful conflict, then we work towards it and we will make it happen. I'd like to expand out even further, if I may, because there are, it strikes me, some lessons that can maybe be learned about what you've mentioned, Anthony, as the sort of development of fascism, the development of the global far right in the case of Israel that, you know, should be, let's say, of interest to a lot of people around the world at the moment, unfortunately, because you know, the classic story of the, the colonial boomerang's responsibility for the development of fascism is that sort of, um, the, the treatment and the violent abnegation and domination of people that happens in a kind of colonial periphery, then uh, technologies and governmental strategies get developed there and then they come back to the metropolis and they have an impact on the sort of people who previously considered themselves exempt. In the case of Israel, that boomerang has to go, you know, next door or one mile down the road. And so what kind of lessons should we be uh, taking from this sort of like new iteration of, of the development of fascism in Israel? Because, you know, we're seeing a, an incredibly far-right Knesset at the moment. 
Mm. You know, one of the things I try to show in the book is that there's been a long history of Israel colluding with the worst far-right regimes in the world, as I document extensively. On one hand, the fact that a regime is anti-Semitic is no impediment to Israel to work with them. But I think there's no doubt that one of the reasons I think that there is growing support for Palestine globally, particularly this year, although I would argue that the Israeli government now in some ways is much more honest about its agenda. I mean, let's be clear, when Netanyahu was not prime minister last year, he had a year off between uh, between innings, so to speak, things weren't that different. I mean, sure, there wasn't a far right as as far right in the Israeli cabinet, but on the ground, there wasn't much difference. Situation, I'm not minimising the acceleration of the trends of what's happening in Palestine. There is clearly a move with the current Israeli government to formally annex the West Bank or even unofficially. It doesn't really make much difference. It's been annexed anyway for years, frankly, in my view. And the difference I think now is that I think this is where I, I find there's not enough international intention or understanding that Israel is forming both official and unofficial alliances with much of the global far right. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean by that. The obvious examples are, yes, the Hungary under Orban, or Modi in India. There are obvious examples and there are important ones, and India being the, the main one, being such a major global power now on the rise. But there's many other examples. I mean, barely a week goes by, and this was not just this year. Let me just be clear. This is not just the current government. I think there's, a, 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 to me, there is a very dangerous international obsession with Netanyahu. I'm not suggesting he's not a dangerous figure. He is. I'm not saying he's a wonderful guy. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But there is an obsession with him, like there is an obsession in America with Trump. They are key figures historically, sadly, tragically, horribly. But the focus is not simply one man. It goes well beyond that. And the reason I say that is that the connections or the ties that the Israeli government for years, for years, has been making with the global far right goes well beyond Netanyahu. It goes well beyond this particular government. A few examples just recently, yes, during the current government, Israel is forming alliances with the Romanian far right. Now, Romania is not a global power, never will be, never has been. These are far right parties with Nazi history. These are, these are, these are parties that don't like Jews, openly anti-Semitic parties. Why? The Israeli government acknowledges why. They want support for the occupation in international forums. It's not, they're not even hiding what the agenda is. That's the agenda. They want to get support in the UN, for example, for the occupation. There's a reason why, for example, the Israeli right and, frankly, parts of the Israeli Zionist left are forming alliances with many far-right groups across Europe, both in government and in opposition. For them, the fact that a party is anti-Semitic or has anti-Semitic histories is not an impediment at all. And I think that kind of brazen embrace of the far right should be an incredible red flag to anybody who looks to Israel, not to listen to this podcast perhaps, but in the wider community, who see Israel as some beacon of democracy. Now, even if you believe that, and of course you have to be delusional to believe that, it's pretty hard, and we're talking before about it, these words were not used, but essentially saying it's increasingly hard to sell Israel's PR. There are some people, of course, who love Israel. I'm not denying that. But how do you 
as someone who is rational, fair, believes in human rights, look to an alliance between Israel and far-right fascist parties and say, hmm, this is a bit odd, curious, why is this happening? And this is happening in country after country after country. There's a reason why if you go to many far-right rallies in the US, UK, Australia, which I have been to, to be clear, <laughs> for work. <laughs> as a journalist. For work, as a journalist, to be clear, <laughs> not as a participant, as a journalist. And the Israeli flag is not an uncommon sight. On January 6, the US capital, there are Israeli flags. And there's a reason for that. On the face of it, it might seem bizarre, far-right groups waving the Israeli flag, groups that traditionally don't like Jews. And these groups don't like Jews at all. And I quote in the book Richard Spencer, who's a sort of infamous alt-right leader in the US, who says, I'm a white Zionist. He says, I'm totally proud of, I love what Israel's doing. Now, he doesn't like Jews, let's be clear. What he does admire, though, is what Israel has created in its own country as an ethno-nationalist state. He wants to do the same thing in his country, to build a Christian fundamentalist ethno-state. That, to me, is the danger. Not that Richard Spence is about to be president tomorrow. He's not. But the danger is that, A, frankly, they're Republican, many elements, and this is not to defend Democrats by any means, but there is clearly a difference. There is a big difference between the Trump-led Republican Party and the Democrats on these issues. Again, not to defend Joe Biden or the Democrats at all, but there is a difference that what elements of the Republican right want to create, Israel is their model. They say that openly. In America, a Christian fundamentalist ethnostate, that is what they want to build. Now, we can say that's delusional, it's never going to happen. If Trump wins next year, which is possible, very possible in my has to be the candidate a lot of has to, you know, a lot of what ifs i get that but that's very viable to me that trump could win if he's the candidate against a very very weak joe biden and a very old joe biden i mean trump is old too but biden anyway that's a whole separate conversation i mention that because <laughs> if america elects someone like trump a person who is openly talking about he wants to build an ethno nationalist state he's not hiding it the nation that is held up as the model is Israel. That's the model. Obviously, they want to build a Christian ethno nationalist state, not a Jewish one. And many other nations around the world and the global far right are viewing Israel as that inspiration. So when we talk about the, the issue of Israel as a warning, as I keep on saying and writing in the book, the threat is not just to Palestinians anymore. Not that that threat's not bad enough. <laughs> it is bad enough, but it's gone well beyond that now. And it's always been that way, frankly, but it's accelerated in the last 10 years, I would say. And Netanyahu is undeniably a key figure in that, to be sure. And Israeli surveillance and repressive tech has been the calling card. That is how they have made friend after friend after friend, from Saudi Arabia to Rwanda to India. Now, those nations may have been friends without repressive technology and spyware. We don't know. But the fact is those, those tools have been used very effectively by Israel as a diplomatic calling card to build a, glo a loose global coalition of the far right. And that to me is a deeply disturbing side as someone who is a, yes, secular, non-religious Jew. Like I think to myself often, this is our legacy? 80 years or so after the Holocaust, when most of my family were killed, 
This is the legacy of the Jewish people. Not, not all Jews are in Israel. Not all Jews support Israel. Of course, I get that. I'm one of those. But the idea that a Jewish legacy in the 21st century is a Jewish majority state building a fundamentalist racist nation that inspires the fascist global right. I think that is our legacy. We have a duty, I think, as Jews and humans to speak out against that and put out the red flags and say, this is where this is going unless we stand up and do much more than stand up, I should say. Gada, some quick final thoughts to you. Yeah, I, I, um, for me, we're living through a period where the Israeli project has begun to unravel and it's doing it in different ways in internally and externally. And at a time when the internal resistance to, to Israel has become stronger and stronger, and at a time when the world supports, much of the world supports the Palestinians. I think this is a really important historical moment. And I am optimistic that we will emerge from this with a state, a Palestine, returned to us, fully democratic, welcoming to all the people who live there and all the people who were expelled from there. That's what I look forward to. And I, 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 I think things are changing in such a way that the environment will be created where that will happen. Wow. Fantastic. He is hoping, he is willing, he is acting. Anthony, Garda, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you both. That was our episode. Thank you so much for listening. We heard from Anthony Lowenstein and Garda Kami about the realities of the occupation in Israel-Palestine and how a one-state solution might help forge a path to peace. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do consider giving us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. And join us next time where we'll be talking about cryptocurrency, Silicon Valley libertarianism and the reinvention of money in the digital age with Rachel O'Dwyer and Edward Ongueso Jr. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.